And so today we cover Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, the second of the seven churches, or the letters to the seven churches. And let's be reminded, as we started last week into this phase of the study, how the first letter was directed to the church at Ephesus. And just very briefly, that church was both commended and um, promoted for its positive things, such as hating the teachings of the Nicolaitans and not tolerating false teachers. But on the other hand, they were bitterly criticized by our Lord for forsaking their first love, love of each other, love of their fellow human beings in a positive sense. So there was sort of the balance of the two. Today, we look at a different church in a different city, the city of Smyrna. Now, I'm going to read verses 8 through 11. We're going to go back through the verses, and then I'm also going to pick up the last verse of the previous section a little bit later. But follow along as I read Revelation 2, 8 to 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write these things, says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Let me just go ahead and mention, I'm going to cover some of this other material in this section, but the second death there is a a reference to the ultimate uh, death, eternal death, the the death of damnation and hellfire. The first death is our physical transition, the fact that we have to suffer because of the fall of man, the the expiration of our physical bodies in this world, but then the, the second death is far worse. It is a spiritual death that uh, consigns us forever into outer darkness. These people are promised they will escape that problem, that punishment. So let me begin by asking you, have you ever been persecuted? Yeah, I, I doubt that most of us here today have ever had to endure persecution in the larger sense of the word. But the truth is, persecution for the cause of Christ is closer to us and much more of a reality today than we might suppose. Now, certainly... In the past several years, we have seen direct evidence and mounting evidence of that being the case in ways that most of us uh, of any age could have never imagined in these United States, at least. But it doesn't start with just the past couple of years and the pandemic. Pastor Chuck McElhenney was one who could tell you something about the more modern persecution for the cause of Christ here in this country. He was, and he maybe still be, a minister in our sister denomination, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And for over 30 years, he pastored the first Orthodox Presbyterian Church in, of all places, San Francisco, California. Well, about roughly 25 or 30 years ago, his church hired an organist, whom it was later learned was not a Christian and was indeed a practicing sodomite, a homosexual perhaps not uncommon in that city. Well, when those things were discovered, Pastor McElhaney and the session informed the organist that they could not, in good conscience, continue to employ him, so the organist voluntarily resigned and left. 
But you see, the session made a decision based on the requirements of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ to stand for truth rather than conform to the times and the culture. Pastor McElhenney and his wife began to receive death threats from anonymous phone callers shortly after that organist resigned. And shortly after that also, the church was firebombed. And then following that, someone threw a small explosive device into the bedroom of the manse. And the pastor and his wife and church experienced many other hardships and persecutions, but through it all, they remained faithful. Pastor McElhenney wrote about his experience in the book that I'm showing you right now. It's called When the Wicked Sees a City. It was published some years ago. Yeah, I think you can still find it online. And it chronicles. And by the way, this was taking place in the 1980s. This is not last year, year before, something way back in the first century. This is the 1980s here in these United States. Now, in the letter to the second church at Smyrna, we find a church that was facing also severe persecution because of their faithfulness to Christ. Smyrna, like Ephesus, was another very important city located about 35 miles uh, north of Ephesus. And from what we know of Roman historical records, those two cities competed for recognition and prestige as the premier cities of Asian Rome, the Asian, what we would today call the Turkish area of the Roman Empire. But you know, unlike the other letters to the churches, this letter, especially compared to the one we just read in the first few verses, this letter contains no rebuke and no warning from Christ. Yeah, the other churches were failing in some way or another, but the church at Smyrna was being faithful through terrible trial and poverty. Now, that doesn't mean that this was the perfect church and they had no problems at all. But it does mean that in comparison to some of the others, this church's faithfulness to the gospel of the kingdom of God far outweighed whatever problems may have existed there. So let's begin by considering verse 8. If you'll take another look at that. In these letters to the seven churches, Christ himself uh, refers to himself using those various words that we first encountered in the first chapter. So here he calls himself the first and the last, and that indicates that he is the same God who calls himself by the same name, not just in the first chapter of Revelation, but all the way back in the book of Isaiah, Yahweh calls himself by that name, Isaiah 44, verse 6. So friends, you see, the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. They are one, and yet three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And let me just tell you that anyone who claims to believe in the God of the Old Testament and yet denies that Jesus Christ is God Almighty, come in human flesh, they are denying the God they claim to believe in. Jesus declares that he is the same one who has died and has now come back to life. Literally, in the Greek, it means or reads that he became dead and he sprung back to life. He sprang back to life. And verse 9, if you look at that verse again, there are four things listed here that the Lord says that he knows concerning the church at Smyrna. First of all, he refers to their works. They ministered to many of the people in Smyrna, but especially among their own flock. But then secondly, he refers to their tribulation. He knew of the persecution they were facing because of their work and their labors on behalf of the kingdom message. It was their labors for the kingdom that got them in trouble. Now, you might think that 
maybe they got in trouble because they were a bunch of thugs with picket signs and bullhorns and protesting any and everything that was going on in the city of Smyrna that they didn't like. I mean, was it something like that that got them into trouble and facing tribulation? No. No, it was not. What caused their tribulation was along the same lines as what caused Pastor McElhaney's tribulation in the First Orthodox Presbyterian Church in San Francisco. The work that Christ calls us to do, friends, is of a twofold nature. It has two sides to it in this case. On the one hand, there are things that he requires us to do, positively speaking. That is, he requires us to obey him, to witness for him, to live for him, to worship him, to support his church, and to be actively involved in the spread and growth of his kingdom. On the other hand, there are things that he requires us not to do, negatively speaking. We are to refuse and abstain from doing anything that violates his law. Pastor McElhaney's case, it was the negative side of those labors that led to his persecution. For the Christians in Smyrna, it was their labors on both sides that led to it. Now, you know, if somebody is being persecuted, then there must be someone or something doing the persecuting, right? And that leads me then to the third thing here, and that is the blasphemy of the Jews. The Jews were the main persecutors of the church in Smyrna. Okay, let's get one thing straight right away. I'm sorry if that makes you uncomfortable. Well, actually, I'm not sorry. <laughs> I'll just be honest with you. But I'll say some people may get uncomfortable when we start talking about the Jews as being the persecutors. I'm just simply telling you what history and scripture tells us. Now, if you want to believe a bunch of propaganda and uh, politically correct nonsense, that's your business. But you can't reconcile, and if you really believe God's word is infallible and inerrant and all of it teaches, you've got to deal with the truth. Either deny it or accept it. There was in Smyrna a large Jewish population, as there were in many large prosperous Roman cities. And the leaders of the Jews, especially their leaders, were bitterly opposed to the spread of the kingdom message and the church, the assembly of Jesus the Christ. We know that almost a hundred years after the book of Revelation was written, the pastor of the church at that time, it was still around, a man named Polycarp was burnt alive in the Colosseum. The, most of these big Roman cities had their own little versions of the Colosseum, and they had one at Smyrna. He was executed, the pastor of the church was, as a criminal for reasons that I'm going to mention shortly. I'll come back to that. But the historical records tell us that it was the Jews that were largely responsible for the pastor's arrest. And on the day that he was burned alive, which one historical account I read said it fell on the Jewish Sabbath, many of the Jews of the city were quite willing to help prepare the stake at to which Polycarp was affixed while he was burned alive. Those Jews were opposed to the kingdom message. And they were thus opposing the work of the very God they claimed to believe in. They fancied themselves as true believers the true congregation of Almighty God. But our Lord Jesus called them something else, didn't he? In truth, they were, as Jesus declared, a congregation, the synagogue of Satan. Now, let me be quick to say here that the point here is not that the Jews were any worse than the Gentiles who also opposed the church of Jesus Christ. But the point is, as Judaic people... 
at least traditionally in line with what the Older Testament teaches, they should have known better, but they willingly chose not to. We know, again, from historical accounts that the Jews typically formed trade guilds or unions in many of the cities of the Roman Empire. And that's significant because it meant that to some extent, in some places, they controlled some, but not all, a lot of the trade in that city. And you say, well, what difference does that make? And I'm going to tell you, it leads to this fourth thing that Jesus says he knows about these people. He knows about their poverty. So the Greek word translated here, uh, patokeon, it, it really literally means destitute. There's another Greek word that means you don't have very much. This word, Greek word translates, it means you got nothing. It's one thing to live with scarcity. It's another thing to live and you don't have anything. Now, there's little doubt that the Jewish leaders exerted pressure on the trade guilds and unions to prevent Christians from getting work and, in some cases, having them fired from the jobs they already had. But the Jews were not the only persecutors of the church because they had the willing help of the Roman authorities as well. See, the Roman Empire had been long accustomed to having many different religions in its cities. And in those days, Smyrna was filled with a variety of cults and religions and holy men. And as far as the Romans were concerned, the Christians were just another group of Jews. They didn't make that much distinction. They knew they were these people who called themselves Jews, and they had some base in, in one of the other Roman provinces of Palestine and Jerusalem. But other than that, they didn't care. The main thing was, you stood and you saluted to the Roman federal government. So while they were tolerant of all kinds of religions... There's one thing they did not tolerate, or let me put it this way, a positive way. There's one thing they did require of all religious groups. All the citizens of the empire, all of them, were required to offer a once-a-year sacrifice to Caesar as a god. Or at least as the head of the Roman government, as all-powerful. Now, at the time in which the book of Revelation was written, depending on your dating, that emperor was Nero Caesar, which I happen to believe. Some would say it was Domitian many years later. Either way, you got the same thing. He had already proclaimed himself to be a god at this point, Nero had. He was the head of the government, and anybody who didn't pay an annual tribute to him was thereby guilty of treason. Now, the Jews, you may be wondering, well, how did they get away with it? Well, they were given a pass because they were allowed to offer a sacrifice in the name of Caesar as the head of the Roman state, but not as a god. And so they offered a sacrifice to him that was acceptable to the Roman federal government, but not the Christians. They refused. Their position was direct, and it was unbending. If the Jews, in calling for the execution of Jesus, had declared, as is recorded in John nineteen eighteen, we have no king but Caesar, the Christians were now declaring, we have no king but Christ Jesus. There is no other government under heaven by which we will be governed, in other words. Their position was simple. We will not offer sacrifices to any man. Today, we would say that they refused to bend their knee to the federal government because the federal government refused to bend its knees to Christ. Now, the leaders of the Jews were aware of that, and so... They told the Roman authorities that, you know, these Christians over here, they're not like us at all. We're not like any of them. And so, as I said, about 100 years after the book of Revelation was written, Polycarp, 
The pastor of the church at Smyrna was hauled before the Roman governor of that province because of his refusal to offer the sacrifice to Caesar. And on the day of his execution, he was given one last chance, offer the yearly sacrifice or die. And Polycarp's response was recorded and is remembered to this day among true followers of Jesus. Because this is what he said. He said, I have served my Lord Jesus Christ for 86 years, and he has shown me nothing but love and mercy. How can I now blaspheme my king who has saved me? And for that, he was put to death because he refused to acknowledge the federal government of his day as the absolute voice of truth of law and life. And because of that kind of faith, Polycarp and all the believers in Smyrna were counted as wealthy, rich by Christ Jesus. Though they lacked goods and material things, they were rich in mercy, rich in blessing. They walked with Christ. And those are riches the world does not know. Way back in the year 1877 in the city of Chicago, a, mission, a Christian mission was formed to the homeless and destitute people of that city. And it was called, and still is today, the Pacific Garden Mission. They have ministered the love and truth of Christ Jesus to millions of lost and destitute souls. Now, I happen to know about this because many, many years ago, when I first began to follow Jesus, I used to listen to shortwave Christian radio broadcasts. Those happened to be the better ones. There were a number of popular Christian radio networks on shortwave. And a number of these programs were sponsored by the Pacific Garden Mission. But they also had their own radio broadcast. I think you could probably hear it on some stations around here. I don't know. You can hear it online. They have this broadcast on over 130 stations all over the world, and their program is called Unshackled. And the program usually comes on with an invitation to listen again. Excuse me. It, it, clo- it closes with an invitation to listen again to the next broadcast. And in these memorable words, the announcer says, And you will find out how your life can be filled to overflowing. See, friends, that is the wealth of true faith. All the jobs, all the college degrees, all the money and uh, employment and fame, it will never, ever fill your life to overflowing. That is what set the Christians at Smyrna apart from all the rest. They knew that this is what sustained them through times of terrible hardship and persecution. Now, look again at verse 10. So they are told things will get worse before they get better. In essence, that's what it says. Now, there's that interesting statement that uh, they will be having tribulation for 10 days. Now, this is one of many, many things in the book of Revelation that is not meant to be understood literally. Let me make something clear, not only about the book of Revelation, but the Bible as a whole. You know, you you hear people say, well, do you take the Bible literally? And you'll hear this from some fundamentalist Christian people that we probably have some things in common with. And then, of course, you'll hear it from atheists and humanists and non-believers. But my response is this. Well, we take the Bible literally where it's meant to be understood literally, and then we take it symbolically or metaphorically where it's meant to be taken that way. We do take every jot and tittle, every word and sentence of Scripture as absolutely divinely inspired and inerrant. That doesn't mean we take every sentence and every word literally. And this is an example. It doesn't mean that they're going to have literal 10 days of tribulation. Rather, it means 
to tell them that they will be suffering for a while, but it, there, there will be an end to it. It won't last forever. Typically, in these symbols, the, the, the numbering symbolisms, you know, a thousand years is a symbol for a long stretch of time. It's not meant to be taken literally. Well, how do you know that? I'll just give you one example, a familiar one, I think, to most of us. In the book of Psalms, the psalmist refers to Yahweh, the Lord, as owning the cattle on a thousand hills. You own the cattle on a thousand hills. Obviously, the Lord owns all the cattle on all the hills on this earth. So, owning the cattle on a thousand hills is a metaphorical way of saying you own them all. And here, ten days tribulation means it's not a lengthy time. There is an end to it. It won't last forever. And the Lord very graciously then sets their priorities for them. Their goal in all of the suffering was not fear, but faithfulness. Don't fear, he tells them, but do be faithful. So you got the negative and positive thing going again. Do not fear, do be faithful. And one thing about the city of Smyrna, like a lot of these big bustling Roman cities, was that they were known for their athletic games. Every year or so, that city... Uh, and the surrounding towns, they would have their own version of the Olympics. And like the ancient and modern Olympics, the Roman games included things like boxing and wrestling and long and short distant foot races and javelin throwing. And the winner of each event was crowned with the laurel wreath of victory. And that's what the Lord's referring to here. The, the Greek word here for crown, Stephanon, it does not refer to the crown of a king or a queen, but the crown of a victorious warrior or athlete. Now, traditionally, in Rome, it was Caesar, or in the provinces, one of his appointed governors who would bestow the crowns on the winners. So here is a not-so-subtle slap in the face of the humanistic government of Rome. Christ declares that he is the one who bestows the crown and bestows zoe, life. It comes from God Almighty. It does not come from the state or the government. Now, I want you to look at verse 7 at the end of the first section, chapter 2, verse 7, and then let's compare it with verse 11. So, verse 7 reads, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And he says, To him overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And then now, in today's reading, in verse 11, it says, um, He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So those verses show us that these letters are intended for all churches in all times and places. If we have ears to hear, then we'd best pay attention to what the Spirit of God is saying to those churches. Because in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, the tree of Genesis was replaced by another tree, the tree of Calvary, the cross of Christ. That cross, and more properly speaking, the Savior who died upon it, that is the tree of life for all today. So if we would have abundant life, we must partake of the fruit of that tree. So how do we do that? Well, first, by being reborn by the Spirit of God and thereby have new life that will be filled to overflowing. This is the kind of abundant life that Jesus says that if we follow him, if we are reborn in him, the Spirit will give us zoe, the God kind of life, both now and in the age to come. And then secondly, he says, all who are given that new life may partake of the fruit of that tree. Specifically, listen carefully, in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. 
For it is there by faith that we truly feed upon him who was sacrificed on the tree of life at Calvary for us. But let's stop for it. Take another another look at verse 7. Now, where was the tree referred to in that verse? Well, it says it was in the paradise of God. A reference to the Garden of Eden, of course. But where is the tree of life now? Well, it too is in the paradise of God. And where is that paradise? Well, we could say that in some sense it exists and the plane or the, the level known as heaven. But I believe we're missing out on something if we just simply leave it at that. Because God intended for this world, the world that he created in the space of six days and all very good, this is to be the place where we live now that's to resemble the ultimate paradise in some measure. Now you may think, well, it doesn't look like that now, does it? How in the world can you imagine that this world is going to be paradise? I'll come back to that question in a moment. But let's be reminded that Adam was called to tend and cultivate this paradise, the world, the garden, but he failed. But Christ has become and is the second Adam, and he has succeeded. And that is where we all come back into the picture. See? That is the calling that we too have been given in Christ. To tend and keep the garden. Occupy till he comes. Bring the nations in and make them my disciples. So, to return to that question just now, if you want to know why your world in particular and our world in general is more like hell than paradise, well, the answer is simple. Because we are not doing the job that he's called us to do. He promised us that the gates of hell will not be able to withstand the onslaught or the attack of the church. Now, some of you ought to be puzzled by what I just said, because, you know, the standard translation of that verse is that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And the image that that wording, the old classic King James calls to mind, is that the church is just sort of cowering behind this a figurative speaking wall and the gates of hell are attacking you know, like something out of the, uh, uh, the Lord of the Rings movies with these massive armies of demons and ugly characters attacking the walls. That's not what the Greek wording in the text actually says in the grammar. The image, rather, is that the gates of hell are being attacked and overrun by heaven, by the forces of heaven, by the forces of Christ's church. So the problem is that we have not been doing the attacking. Notice that in both, both verses 7 and 11, the reward is linked directly to what? Overcoming. And that word literally means to carry off the victory, to come away with the crown, another reference to the games. Jesus commands us to be victorious over those things that are trying to overcome us. And my friends, this is a battle to the death. You know, there's both a a personal application of that challenge, and there's also what I'll call an objective application of that challenge. But we need to be aware there can only be one victor in that battle, because it is a battle to the death, and it's either Christ or Satan. But we know, don't we? We have every earthly assurance, every heavenly assurance. We have the absolute truth of God's word that the battle has already been won. It's already been decided. Each of us will face different issues in that fight with Satan. But here is what we must keep in mind. Each believer, each church of the Lord Jesus Christ, are under divine command to conquer and completely overwhelm the opposition. 
Now, this duty of overcoming the opposition is not limited to just a few super-Christians. All Christians are overcomers. In 1 John 5, 4, John wrote, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And so, friends, in reality, for the Christian, the question is not about victory or defeat. It's about victory or treason. Are we going to be faithful and fight this battle and win the victory that has literally already been won for us? Are we going to go AWOL, absent without leave, and commit treason against the government and kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ? Friends, a crown of life awaits us, a life that can be filled to overflowing. Let us pray.